If you guys have your Bibles, you can open your Bibles to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And as you can see, we're almost done with this chapter, so we're moving along in this book. You just have two more chapters in this book. And as we begin this next chapter, I just want to remind you of how a great part of this letter seems to be structured. And it certainly seems that the approach Paul uses in his teaching is by either addressing each question that was written to him in a letter by the Corinthians, or simply just addressing what he knew of them by word of mouth. So, in other words, where there was a problem, Paul sought out to correct it. That's kind of how we see this letter, right? And in this chapter, the doctrine of the resurrection is going to be addressed. And it's probably more on a resurrection in this chapter than any other chapter in the Bible. And the question I think that maybe we have to ask ourselves is, why would he feel the need to talk about such a foundational doctrine of the Christian faith? And if we take it even further, maybe we need to first determine if indeed it is foundational. And why? Because believe it or not, there's some who are Christians or claim to be Christians that are have a very low view of the resurrection or don't think it's important at all. So we need to answer that question. And the question that might be asked is, did the Corinthians, in fact, struggle in believing in the doctrine of the resurrection? And if they did or if they didn't, was the problem with Christ's resurrection or was the problem with theirs and people in general? And I believe these questions will be answered as we go through the chapter. So I see this section best broken down. Chapter 15, I have it broken down in, uh, in six, chap- six weeks. Um, maybe that might change, but as of now, we have it broken down in six weeks. And um, so I believe that <clears throat> this section in particular, the first 11 verses, is best broken down as Paul making his arguments for the resurrection from both a theological perspective and a historical perspective perspective. So the first has to do with the message of the gospel itself and is therefore theological. And the second has to do with the eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection and is therefore historical. It's historically verifiable, right? And as we move forward with this chapter, you will see that these first 11 verses are again foundational to what Paul is going to teach in the remaining of this chapter. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Um, I have some stuff for you guys to go through, all the verses that, that I'm going to be adding are in those sheets in front of you with some fill-ins, if that, if that makes it easier for you. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, but before I do that, I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we thank you this morning for this great day that you have made, Lord God. We truly do rejoice, Lord. We are glad because we're your children. We are glad because we have an opportunity to worship you here on this earth, Lord God, in this imperfect state that we are in, Father, that we can worship you by believing in your word, by clinging to your word, by acknowledging and remembering, Lord God, all the good things that you have done for us, remembering the great salvation that you have given to us so freely, Lord God. And we have an opportunity to grow closer to you in, in knowledge, Lord God, and with the hopes of that everything that we learn, Lord, we can uh, apply that knowledge. We can respond to that very knowledge, Lord God, 
with the ultimate goal, with wisdom rather than with foolishness. Father, that is my prayer for all of us. And I pray, Father, you would just be with me, be with my lips as I, as I go through this. And Father, I pray that your spirit would be the teacher as I know he is. And I'm thankful for that. So I pray that you bless this time together as a family. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. And it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Alright. So, number one, let's first look at Paul's defense from a theological perspective. So apparently, there were some in the congregation that had difficulty in believing in the resurrection of the dead. But as we're going to see in this chapter, it was not so much the resurrection of the Lord that they had difficulty with, but with the resurrection of people. And there could be many reasons for this, but I think one thing Roger Ellsworth says this in his commentary, which can be helpful, and it's something, if we understand two of the greatest heresies in the early church was uh, legalism and Gnosticism. And Gnosticism has to do with crazy Greek thought concerning the body and the spirit. And he says these words, which might be helpful. It says something that the skeptics were simply reflecting the common Greek viewpoint of the day. The Greeks believed the body was inherently evil and that it was the prison house of the soul. When death came, the soul was finally re released from its prison. The idea of the body being raised at some later time and reunited with the soul was, to this way of thinking, the most undesirable thing imaginable. What joy could there be in the soul being placed in its prison again? And listen, if you understand, if that's what you believe, I can understand why they would think that, but we know the resurrection is much different than that. So... We know that the problem wasn't with Christ's resurrection because it was part of the very gospel preached to them, which they received by Paul, right? In which they stood, as the scripture just says, and by which they were being saved. There is no accurate gospel apart from the teaching of the resurrection. This is so important. That is part of the gospel message. And I think it is safe to say that in verse 3, when Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that he is speaking of the importance of the accurate teaching of the gospel which saves. 
It was the very gospel that he received and saved him. It doesn't say that it, that it is of first importance, that what is of first importance is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, and then the second would be that he's buried, and then the third, that he rose from the dead. But what is of first importance is the totality of the good news, the totality of the message, which involves his death, burial, and resurrection. Those three are of first importance, understand? So that is what he means. And this is going to be further discussed with Pastor Len next week. So I mentioned in the beginning that we must first determine if it is indeed foundational, the doctrine of the resurrection, and why. And some would say that if Christ was not raised, then he would have proven himself to be a fake. Right? And now, Paul certainly seems to affirm this as you read on in chapter, like for instance, in verses 17 and 19, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Alright, so it seems to certainly affirm this. But I do want to mention that if Christ didn't raise, I want to just mention something, and I have to be careful how I say this, because I am all about the resurrection. Of course I am, right? But if his will was different, let's just say, the ultimate goal, the will of God was different, and we know it isn't, I'm going to say that he still did things in his life that proved that he was God because of several things. Well, number one, his virgin birth. His virgin birth is evidence that he was God, right? No one can be born of a virgin. The miracles that he did, the miracles that he did also proved that he was God. Only God can do miracles, has the power to do miracles. And then most importantly, and there's so much power in this, is his sinless life, Right? And we understand, I'm not talking about someone that might have the appearance, no one has done this anyway, but let's say someone that has the appearance of being sinless outwardly. But then that still means nothing. Because what's inside is what really matters, right? Jesus' sinless life, that means that he was a perfect, perfect worshiper of God. He was perfectly obedient to the Father when he was here. He did Absolutely nothing wrong. Only God can do that. But we need to realize that Satan can do miracles as well. Again, Satan cannot do them in and of himself. He has no power in and of himself. Power, temporary power, a lot of power. It completely has nothing to do. It's not, it's not even close to the power that God has. Because God is the one that has allowed him to have this power. But Satan can do miracles. He's done that with Pharaoh and his magicians. Was able, they were able to do their secret arts, right? But not nearly as powerful as God's. So Satan can temporarily do these things to deceive people. But Jesus had to demonstrate all of God's attributes. And he did. In John 14, 6, one of my favorite verses, a very simple verse, is a Sunday school verse when you're a kid says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Right? So He's the only way to get to heaven. He's the only way to be with the Father for eternity. The only way to be saved. True life is only in Christ. He is the life giver. Right? But He is the truth. And we know that God cannot what? 
God cannot lie. This is important. God cannot lie. So if we just get a little bit of a logic lesson, right? We know that God cannot lie. Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus could not lie, and nor did He. Right? So this is important. He had to raise from the dead because of several things. The first of those things is that He said He would. Jesus said He would. So if He said He would, being God, He had to do it. Can we agree to that? Amen? So let's look at Matthew chapter 12. John, Thomas said, do you want to read that? Matthew 12, verses 38 to 40. All these verses are in front of you guys. It's on the sheets, John, if you want to use those sheets. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him and said, Teacher, we wish to seek a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, so here we have one moment here when he's using the example of Jonah, but he's saying this is exactly what the Son of Man is going to go through as well. Matt Wessel, you want to read John chapter 2, verses 18 to 22? So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing this? <coughs> Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Alright, good stuff. And then finally, Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 to 23, it says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. Okay? So Jesus said he would do it, and therefore, him being God, and God cannot lie, he had to do it. But also, the scriptures in general said that this must be as well. And to understand this section, we must apply certain rules of interpretation when we go this route, but they are important. And one of those rules of, of interpretation is the principle of progressive revelation. The principle of progressive revelation. Matt Slick says, Progressive revelation is the teaching that God has revealed Himself and His will more through the Scriptures with increasing clarity as more and more of the Scriptures were written. In other words, the later the writing, the more information is given. Therefore, God reveals knowledge in a progressive and increasing manner throughout the Bible from the earliest time to the later time. This makes perfect sense since we know that not everything God revealed to us was revealed right away. Dr. Richard Barcelos, I probably learned the most from him in seminary, says this phrase, he says that subsequent revelation often makes explicit what is implicit in antecedent revelation. And this means that God may say something in Scripture at one point in history that may be somewhat mysterious or obscure, but becomes clearer when He says something else at a later point in history. Understand? And when this occurs, the later and more clear passage becomes the infallible and inerrant interpretation. 
Even if we didn't understand it before, that becomes the interpretation. And this is clearest, again, in the New Testament. Again, Tom Hicks, in an article he wrote on Founders Ministries, also says the following. Remember Tom Hicks, we watched a video of him. He's a brilliant man. Uh, just, I, I love everything about how he handles the Word of God. And again, he says this, One important aspect of biblical hermeneutics, that's a, a big word, but it's an important word, it means the theory of biblical interpretation, is the principle of New Testament priority. He says, At the beginning of the Middle Ages, Augustine of Hippo expressed the New Testament priority with the phrase, and we've all heard this phrase, it's actually very old, which is the new is the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. And we've heard that phrase before. Augustine meant that the Old Testament contains shadowy types and figures that are only clearly revealed in the New Testament. In other words, the New Testament explains the Old Testament. The Protestant Reformers and Puritans also looked to the New Testament to govern their interpretation of the Old. An early confessional particular Baptist, Nehemiah Cox, agreed with the Reformed interpretive principle when he wrote, the best interpreter of the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit speaking in the New Testament. In other words, we have more revelation having the New Testament than, let's just say, the average Jewish person who's not saved because they don't believe in a gospel that only has the Old Testament. The New Testament is the true interpreter of it. And this is extremely important. And Jesus and his disciples actually did this if you look at Scripture. In Luke 24, verses 25 to 27, our Lord says this, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, a lot of those things were mysterious. They were obscure. They, they, they weren't very clear, and yet Jesus made it more clear. And we have certain verses that are pretty explicit that say, this is now that. In Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 46, it says, Then he said to him, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now believe it or not, you're going to find it very difficult to look through the Old Testament and see it explicitly like that. But yet Jesus, our Lord, is saying that. In Psalm 16.10, and this is the popular one, he quote, it's quoted in Acts, I have them both down there. David, in writing this psalm, says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now David, when he wrote this, had his own immediate context. He didn't know everything that he was saying, right? But in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 to 28, we read this. It says, For David says concerning him, that is Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. 
you will make me full of gladness with your presence. So here we see very clearly that David believed that the basis of his resurrection one day was rooted in the Messiah's resurrection in whatever clarity he had at that time. But also, I want to say that the theology as a whole of the Bible also affirms this. And this is important, and this is where we need to just kind of, I think at least, we have to think through it a little bit. God's will for mankind is not something that is spiritual alone, but also physical. Sometimes because maybe some people can put too much emphasis on the physical, we fail to realize that part of our being is in fact physical, right? If we understand the plan of God correctly, we will see this is very, very important. Mankind was created from the dust of the earth. He was created in God's image as a rational creature, and by virtue of that, he owed God total allegiance because he was created in his image and was rational unlike animals or anything else. In Genesis chapter 1, Verses 26 to 28. Sarah, you want to read that? And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that feeds on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay. So God created mankind here on the earth, which was perfect, and he gave them a command that was to be obeyed, which had consequences for disobedience, right? You go to Genesis chapter 2 and verses 15 to 17. Sean. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so God gave them a specific command, right? Here, right here, is the covenant of works. We've heard that. Okay? It was a unilateral covenant coming from God to his creation, and to, to Adam in particular, and Adam was to completely obey. Again, these are things that we've talked about already in this class. Adam, this is important, is the federal head of all humanity. This means that he represents all of them. It means that his obedience or disobedience during this time of probation determined the whole human race. In other words, that during this time, if he did not eat that fruit and he fully obeyed, and let's say, for instance, Cain was conceived, Cain would have been born without any sin. Right? 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die." so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, it says, Therefore, 
Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, including those that have never been born yet. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. What is he saying here? Talking about before the law was given, talking about the law of Moses. But there was a law. The law was written on mankind's heart. He knew the law of conscience and that specific law given to Adam about not eating the forbidden fruit. And yet death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So now, why am I saying all this? So when it comes to being in headship, there are two people that are spoken of in Scripture. Only two people. Adam and Christ. The first Adam and the second Adam. Both men were flesh and blood. Both men were sons of God. One, of course, was the eternal son of God. Both were physical and spiritual. Jesus became flesh, right? But one was created and one was uncreated. One disobeyed and one obeyed. Through one came death. Through the other came life. We can sum up the whole Bible, if you want, by the story of the two heads, Adam and Christ. If you move on to Romans chapter 5, verses 15 and 19, it says, But the free gift is not like the trespass, the free gift in Christ. For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam's, Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The many meaning those who are in Christ Jesus, who no longer have Adam as their federal head, but Christ as their federal head. So mankind was created to be perfectly physical and earthly, not just spiritual. The age to come, which we all look forward to, which everything is pointing to, the end, right? The age to come is not a bunch of bodiless souls in heaven, but rather heaven on the new earth with the saints and their master that have both everlasting and undecaying bodies and souls living forever on the new earth. That is the ultimate goal of God, right? The age to come is a physical age. It's not just a spiritual invisible age, but a physical age. What Adam failed to do As the covenant head, the covenant of works, Christ did perfectly 
as the other covenant ahead, which is the covenant of grace, which is the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? His resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, is the basis of ours. If He did not raise, then there would be no possibility for us to be raised. He is the first. Does that make any sense? Okay, so let's look at the second one. Paul's defense from a historical perspective. Verses 5 to 11. It says, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. I'm just going to stop there. And though the world may try to say it, we as Christians do not have a blind faith. We know that Scripture is our authority and our biggest defense. And though we do not have a blind faith, we don't. Even if it was, wouldn't matter because all that really because all that doesn't really make a difference. Why? We believe because God has opened our eyes to see the truth. Amen? That's the only reason why we believe. He has opened our eyes to see the truth and we can do nothing else but believe. We can do nothing else but believe. That's the doctrine of irresistible grace. If you haven't been chosen in God, we were once dead. We were once blind, right? That means you can talk to someone. You can, I can teach this perfectly, which I can't. You can do everything right. You're not going to convince anybody, though we are to try to convince them, right? It's that moment in history, if God is dealing with one of His elect, and it's that time for them to get saved, and the veil is lifted, they can only believe they cannot but believe. They cannot resist it. Their eyes have been opened. Amen? Amen? And within Scripture, there is evidence for God and for Christ's resurrection. God clearly tells us that from a natural point of view, creation is evidence in itself that there is a God, okay? And the law written on the heart. In this section, Paul is going to give us a defense of the resurrection from the eyewitnesses in history. And though eyewitnesses are not perfectly credible, they are still very, very credible sources and are used in making a verdict. Right? Oftentimes, it only takes one eyewitness in a crime to do this. There's a lot of weight, there's a lot of value in an eyewitness. And with our Lord's resurrection, we have many eyewitnesses. And we, as the church, we believe this. So let's just go and look what it says. The first is Peter alone. Now, I don't know, maybe you guys didn't even... Honestly, honestly, I didn't even know this before this. It's amazing that you can read something over and over and over again. And I would have never told you that Jesus appeared to Peter by himself. The scripture tells us this. This and in Luke 24, 20, uh, 34 are the only places where we see this. And I believe Paul mentions this. The reason why he mentions this is because the church at Corinth first held Peter in very high esteem. Remember in the beginning, some said, I am a Peter. Right? So they held him. He was the leader of the apostles and 
He was a prominent leader and he was held in high esteem. So I think that because of his status as the leader and probably his denial, right, that our Lord was very gracious to Peter and he revealed himself to him and met with him alone. Then it says that he appeared to the twelve and that's a kind of a, a nickname, I guess you can say, for the apostles. So it's a term for all the apostles. And many would say that this is a false claim because at this moment, Judas was no more, right? That means there would only be 11. And I actually believe that this included Matthias as well. If you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 21 to 26, it says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Listen to that again. I just read that fast. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. In other words, it wasn't just the twelve with Jesus all the time. There was more, right? Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So I believe that this includes Matthias. Or it could very just simply be, because it was a nickname of the apostles, even with Judas being gone, the twelve just means those people. But I think that Matthias was included. Then it says here that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Now that's a lot. That is a lot of eyewitnesses. So I see here that with the 12 and Peter, we certainly see the quality of the eyewitnesses, do we not? These were apostles who were with Jesus all the time. And with the 500 plus, we see the quantity. It's always good to have both quality and quantity at the same time. If we're going to stress one over the other, I always stress quality over quantity. But it's so nice when you have both of them. Then next, we have James, another important figure in the Bible. And this, again, I believe is talking about the brother of Jesus, not the James the Apostle, the brother of John. And James, like all of Jesus' brothers at first, were skeptics. They did not believe, right? So we know that James, the brother of Jesus, was also the leader of the Jerusalem church. And in the beginning, the Jerusalem church was like the hub church. That was where the, the hub of Christian theology was there at the Jerusalem church. So James' testimony is also very valuable. Then it says to all the other apostles, this could be a reference to John 21, 14, or it's just another moment where he's meeting to the twelve. I really don't have any more on that. And then finally, to the apostle Paul himself. Now this really has so much credibility. They all have credibility. But this has so much credibility because Paul, again, was an enemy of the Lord and an enemy of the church. Verse 9 says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. From a human perspective, 
Not having an eternal perspective, knowing the big picture. But from the human perspective, Paul had everything to lose and nothing to gain for being an eyewitness of Christ and a follower of Christ. He hated Christ. He literally hated Christ and hated Christians. He persecuted them. When he was on the road at Damascus, he was on the road with the zeal of hatred towards the Lord, and yet God had His way with him. He was himself an esteemed man in the religious world of Judaism. Great family, great teacher, a lot of credentials, right? So his testimony was indeed valuable and credible. In the Courier, this is a a Baptist newsletter, Butch Bloom writes an essay concerning Vody Bauckham. You know I'm a big fan of Vody Bauckham. It's been a while since I've even listened to him. I haven't had any time. But he wrote an essay concerning Vody saying that believing the Bible is a matter of reason. And he writes the following concerning uh, on Vody. I think it will be helpful for this. Some of the stuff might be familiar with some of you guys that know maybe some of his quotes. He says the following, he says, While he was studying at Oxford University, in response to a professor who pressed him to state why he believed what the Bible says, Bauckham crafted the following response. He says, The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. And Bauckham notes that the Bible is made up of 66 different books written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, by more than 40 authors. These are things that we know. And most of whom who have never met each other was written over a period of 1,500 years. He also notes that the accuracy of historical events presented in the Bible is supported by the findings of more than 23,000 archaeological digs. The Bible, he said, was written by eyewitnesses, which changes everything. Many of the documents of the New Testament were written during the lifetime of eyewitnesses to the resurrection. When you do the math, Balcom says when 1 Corinthians was written there were at least 300 witnesses of the resurrection who were still alive. That's why he says that in the verse that we just read. The witnesses report supernatural events, 2 Peter 1.18, and that the events took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies, 2 Peter chapter 1, 19 and 20. The witnesses also claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. This is where the Bible goes, Bauckham says, and we've got no choice but to go there as his followers. But Bauckham is quick to point out that his job is not to defend the Bible. My defense is of my choice to believe the Bible. Again, what I kind of mentioned before about irresistible grace. We believe because God has opened our eyes to believe. He had mentions, and we're all familiar with this phrase as well, when it comes to defending the Bible, Bauckham defers to Charles Spurgeon, who says, defend the Bible? I would as soon defend a lion. Unchain it and it will defend itself. That is the power of Scripture. It will, in fact, defend itself. So the eyewitness accounts of Christ's resurrection penned down in Scripture, 
are an extremely credible and reliable source of evidence. And we as the church must embrace them and let them be our defense because Scripture alone is our authority. Therefore, when we reason, we always reason from the Scriptures, not to the Scriptures. In other words, it's our starting point. This is what God's Word says. We can go someplace else and then we can go right back to God's Word. Rather than, here's the evidence, now let's try to fit it with God's Word. That's backwards. We start from God's Word and that is so important. And then in verse 10, Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, meaning the other apostles. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. They believed that very gospel which included the resurrection. And I had mentioned that Paul had every, everything to lose and nothing to gain from a natural perspective or a natural point of view. His belief in the gospel which included the resurrection, led him to a life of suffering. Which again, doesn't make any sense unless we understand that this is real. This really happened. Why on earth would someone go through this? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. I have been a, po- I have been a fool, he says. You forced me into it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. In chapter 11, verses 22 to 23, we can get a little bit of a, 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 uh, a piece of what Paul went through. And we know these verses as someone who hated God, rejected God, did not believe in God, did not believe in anything, did not believe in a resurrection. None of that stuff. And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians, and I'll close here with these verses. Verse 22, chapter 11. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. He's not being cocky. He's letting you know what he really went through more than the other apostles. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, Danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. 
At Damascus, the governor under King Aradas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Why is all this important? Why on earth would someone go through all this unless it was true? Unless this truly happened? And we as the church... We believe this, right? As crazy it might seem to the whole world, who is blind to God's word, we believe it. With every fiber of our being, we cling to it. We are that fortunate that the God of all creation would step down, condescend on our level, to reach reach sinners who, by virtue of their natural being, as being children of Adam wanted nothing to do with God, and yet He steps in to save us, to open up our eyes, give us His Spirit, so that we can understand His Word and live for Him with the hopes of one day. And our hope is confidence, right? That we will raise just as He did and have a body perfect just like He has. And we will be with Him forever and ever on a literal new earth. Physically. In the presence of Christ. Physically. I can't even imagine how amazing that will be to be face to face with my master, right? So again, I said this is foundational as we get into the rest of the chapter to understand why that. So I hope that, I hope that was clear to you guys. Any questions? It's that time, we have to get in there anyway. Any questions, comments? No, we're good? Alright, let's prepare our hearts to go worship the Lord. Let's prepare our hearts as we get into the sanctuary again. To reflect and again remember how privileged we are to be seated at God's table. Remember what He did on that cross. Remember His whole life given to us, which that bread symbolizes. Remember His shed blood, which made it all possible. The perfect God-man, which was the perfect sacrifice, which saved us for our sins and made us His forever. That's amazing Wonderful thing. I can't, I can't paint the picture any better. It's between you and God. So let's pray and let's worship Him. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You, Father, that well, we've been raised with Christ. We already have new life. We know those new bodies are ours in the future. We don't have them yet. We look forward to that moment. Help us, Lord God, to be unmoved in our belief in you and in all the the doctrines that you teach us in your word. And where we lack understanding, Lord God, help us to get understanding. When we lack wisdom, help us to ask of you, knowing that you give it liberally. Strengthen our faith when it's weak. And help us to be the people you have called us to be for your glory alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.